0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 99 and Sharker's time is up. First, we pick up the point where James Saunders King had made his way back to Port Natal following the failed diplomacy on Sharker's behalf and the results would be catastrophic for Sharker. It provided added incentive for his enemies inside the Zulu kingdom to move against him. The members of the royal house were conspiring to kill him and had been for at least four years. Remember in early 1828, Chuck had sent the Impi to raid the Amonpondo in an attempt at wiping away the tears of his mother, Nandi's death, and also to keep his army on the move, which is often the best option when there's treason in the wind. Once the army had returned from the raiding along the Amtata River, they had no break, Shaka sent them away once more in the opposite direction. The failed embassy, led by James Saunders King, returned to Port Natal on the 17th of August 1828. Sir Torby, who was Shaka's emissary, bluntly laid the blame for the fiasco in the Cape on King, and Shaka felt humiliated. King had returned with Isaacs on two ships, the Helicon and the Elizabeth and Susan, and when they hove off Port Natal on the 17th, King was pale and sick, Isaacs had to carry him to his residence at Mount Pleasant. On the 19th of August, Isaacs broke open the boxes, supposedly for sharka, which contained a few sheets of copper, a piece of red broadcloth, a few medicines, knives and trinkets. King had added a mirror, or looking glass, as it was known, and that was expensive back in 1828. He also tossed in a few beads. When Isaacs arrived at Quadrucusa with the presents. Shaka was contemptuous of the gifts and suspicious of the seals of the boxes being broken. Shaka demanded that each gift be described, and when he was shown the ointments, Isaacs explained they were for healing wounds, and the Zulu king exclaimed, Do you think we are such scabby fellows as you are? Later, Shaka asked for the medicine that changed the color of hair, the black oil. Otherwise, he was totally underwhelmed by the gifts. These are of no use to my subjects. They are not troubled with the disorders you mention. The best medicine for them is beef. The next morning, Shaka told Isaac that his emissaries spotted King carousing with women in Port Elizabeth. Instead of making the diplomacy a success, he was now considering killing King for the humiliation. But there was something else bothering the Zulu king, and that was the discovery that all the ivory he had given King for the governor of the Cape had somehow disappeared in Port Elizabeth. It was a substantial load of both hippo and elephant ivory, 69 tusks, about two tons, and worth hundreds of pounds. King is thought to have sold this treasure and taken the cash for himself, and Shaka was now seriously considering executing the English trader both for his theft and his useless diplomacy. Now that King was totally discredited, Shaka turned to Francis Farewell, King's adversary. He also chose John Kane, who was Farewell's main agent in Port Natal, to reopen talks with the British. And so Kane and his group left the port for an overland trip to the Cape on the 7th of September, 1828. South of Port Natal, King called for his old adversary, Francis Farewell, to come and visit him as he lay on his deathbed. But Farewell refused, sending only a note that was called A poor, frivolous, unnatural and ungrateful excuse by Henry Francis Finn. It was a few days later that King died of what we are unsure and Sharkey immediately transferred the ownership of King's kraal and his lands to youngster Nathaniel Isaacs. And in a strange coincidence, King's boat builder by the name of John Hutton died within a week. There's no suggestion of foul play. Perhaps they were both afflicted with the same virus. By the 29th of September, Kane had made it as far as Butterworth. Then he pushed on south and finally arrived in Grahamstown, a month after leaving Port Natal, and that was on the 7th of October. And this time, the British officials were far more receptive. Sharker had sent a signed letter, which had been hidden in a bullock horn for safekeeping during the long overland trip. And in that letter, Sharker formally accused King of stealing the ivory, which was supposed to be a gift for the British government. After the usual period of diplomatic wrangling, discussion and time-wasting, Kane was told on the 26th of November that he should return to Shaka with Captain R.S. Etcheson and an armed escort to discuss a new treaty. Things were looking up, or were they? Everyone in Gramscian had no idea of the crime that had just been committed in Zululand. While all of this was going on, the Zulu king had sent his army to the Kazikodi of the Gaza Kingdom north of Delagoa Bay. The latest impi was taking a very long trek, heading to the high ground 130 kilometers northwest of that bay, It overlooked the malaria and tsetse fly-infested country of the bushveld around the Ulfans, the Lapelle River, which the Zulu called the Balule. This was to be known as the Balule Expedition and was Shaka's last. The jaded veterans who'd marched more than a thousand kilometers to and from the Mbondo raid were now sent on an equally distant raid in the opposite direction, and they were not happy because they wanted to spend some time at home first, enjoying the fruits of their victory over the Mbondo. That was not to be. The expedition to the north had some skirmishes, attacking two tributary chiefs for infringements of the Nandi mourning ceremonies, then onwards to Shoshangani's home north of Telago Bay. On the way... They reached the Pongola River and were promptly cut off by Subuza of the Swazi, who sometimes supported the Zulu, sometimes not. This was one of the other times. When the Zulu arrived at the Umbuluzi River in present-day Swaziland, or Iswatini, the army was tetwad doctored for battle. It was at this point that Shaka's brothers, Dingan and Mtlangana, turned back home. They had been conspiring and sensed that now was the time to act against the Zulu king, while his best troops were busy far, far away. Zulu oral history explains how the Balulu impi failed to reach Shoshongani, clashed with the Swazi instead, then turned east, then south through Matkakani's territory, along the Mafumo River near Delagoa Bay. Then they finally decided enough was enough and headed home. A song composed for this expedition is still sung by the Amazulu, and part of it goes... Go everyone to war, old birds and young. He says this. Who is as big as the whole country? You who stayed at home yesterday won't stay at home today. Many by now said that Chaka had bungalekat. He was dagiwa. It'd gone mad. This last expedition seemed to make political sense but also was the last straw for some of his family members. The Gaza kingdom was nearly 700 kilometers away from Kwaidokuza. The Zulu army was operating at the northern limit of its capacity, immediately after operating at the southern limit of its capacity. Worse, the Gaza and Delagoa Bay region was a death trap for the Zulu. It was a fever-ridden swamp. The men were sickened by malaria and dysentery. And Mlacana, the Enkosian charge, had to withdraw after that desultory fight against the Swazi. And by now... Shaka had only a few days to live. He had survived the Asagai stabbing in 1827 and another attempt earlier. You see, in 1824, at the end of a campaign known as the Itlambo, Dingan and Mtlangana were joined by Shaka's trusted Inkeku, in Kasitai in a plan to kill the Zulu king as he sat on a large rock on the banks of the Imkomazi river. But they were disturbed in their plans and so decided to wait until a better time to kill the Zulu leader. And four years later, Mbopa, Dingan, and Imtlangana were not to be denied. It's been said that Shaka had sent Dingan and Imtlangana off to the mission to Delagoa Bay precisely because he was aware of some kind of coup in the winds and was hoping that either the fevers or the Swazi or perhaps the Gaza people would kill them off. The emissaries he'd sent to the Cape were his insurance against his own brothers, and yet. The humiliation he endured actually weakened his standing amongst his people and turned out to be his death warrant. It was when Dingan and Nemplangana had marched all the way to Tkiza Mountain, a brooding flat top geographical extravagance that dominates the Sikwebeze River Basin in northwestern Zululand that they met with others bent on killing Shaka. In all this murderous planning, something logical was left to dangle. If both Dingan and Implangana were to kill Shaka, who exactly was going to be the new king? This is often the case in political murders. The focus against the incumbent obscures the strategic weakness. What is the end game? No honour amongst murdering thieves now is there. Too often political hit jobs like this are muddle-headed. Those involved appear to be more interested in murder than politics and therefore are mistaken in their motivation. If you look at genealogy, Imtlangana was the rightful Inkosana because he was the child of Imzundwazi, Sinzangakona's fifth wife, whereas Dingan was son of Impikazi, Sinzangakona's sixth wife. It's one of life's ironies that at this point Dingan and Imtlangana were close, chummy, or apparently so. Your enemy is my enemy, kind of logic. So they sat on this hill called Keza. They avoided discussing the matter of succession until they killed Shaka. That was a bad mistake. Particularly on behalf of Imlangana. Marching along too, with this Baluli Impi was Mpande, the son of Sungiya, Senzangakona's ninth wife. He was regarded as too weak minded to be of any use and too young anyway to be a threat to either, and was left to continue with the army towards Gaza. Later he had become the king of the Zulus after Dingon. There's a lot more blood to flow in this story. With cold fury and death in their hearts, Dingaan and Implangana walked back to Kwadakuza. They stopped outside the homestead, and before word of their presence spread, they met Mbopa Kasitai, Shaka's main protector, the Inkreku, who had also been part of that botched previous assassination attempt in 1824. Mbopa was around 1.8 meters tall. He was stern, dark, and stout, by all accounts, quite an. Evil man too. He enjoyed killing innocent people, loved torture and always urged execution when there was any doubt. What Shaka didn't know was that Mbopa hated him, believing the Zulu king had caused his mother's death years before. He had waited so long and ingratiated himself so deeply in Shaka's life that now he was the Zulu king's main body servant, the only person in the kingdom who was allowed to carry a spear into Shaka's presence. So Mbopo wanted more power and chiefdom of his own as well as revenge. There was another plotter and her name was Mkabai, Shaka's aunt. She was the matriarch of the Zulu royal house the in Lofugazi, the great she-elephant, and Mkabai gave Dingan and Mplangana her blessing because she blamed Nandi's death on Shaka. Mkabai, was also sick of Shaka's constant warfare, leaving Zululand in chaos. She said he was destroying the kingdom. Imkabai had been whispering about killing Shaka in Dingan's ear for some time, warning him it was either kill or be killed. So the die was cast. What happened next has been muddled by some in the telling, but once again the end result was not disputed. It's terminal, this death business. Not even the date of the assassination is certain, although these days we call it Heritage Day, 24th of September, what used to be known as Sharker's Day. However, we are pretty sure about where the killing took place. That was at the chief residence, the Ikanda, about 50 meters from the Izugodlo in Kwadukuza, where the king could recline with his favorite woman of the harem, so to speak. He would also relax there with counselors. It was an intimate space. It was also late in the afternoon. "'Sharker was sitting on rolled mats outside his hut, "'watching his immense herd of cattle "'being driven home before dark. "'He was wrapped in a woven blanket "'as there was a chilly wind blowing, "'the blanket a gift from one of the Natal traders. "'There were a few serving women from his Izigodlo nearby.' and some senior councillors, including Inkla Zonke Ka Mbengi, one of his elderly uncles from his mother's side of the family, and a handful of other Langeni men, and Inkla Ka Ntandeka of the Sibisi people. Inkla was Shaka's praise singer, his Mbongi. Also present, a delegation from one of the nations he'd forced to Konza. Some say they were the Mpondo, paying tribute. Others, that they were Tswana hunters, or perhaps members of the Izi and people, who lived south of the Tugela River. It doesn't really matter, except for the fact that the crowd was going to be entertained by the murder of a king. Dingan and Implangana showed up, greeting Sharko, whose first response appears to have been anger. They were back from a raid a little early and without the usual fanfare. Why weren't they somewhere near Delagoa Bay, Sharka must have thought. That was suspicious. These assassins had pitched up with half a dozen of their less important brothers, just to put Shaka at ease. However, they in turn were surprised by the number of people around Shaka and after a few greetings withdrew to discuss what to do. Mbopa took the lead telling the co-conspirators to hide behind the wooden fence of the cattle kraal inside the Umuzi but to have their spears ready beneath their skin carosses. Shaka's most trusted Inkaku now created a diversion. He burst into the group of people surrounding Shaka, shouting and waving his spear, saying they were pestering the king. The woman of the Isigodlo realized something nefarious was up and ran off in panic, hiding in the bush. Shaka stood with a bemused smile, leaning against the car fence, appearing almost sardonic, trusting his engleku. Most say the man who started this killing was Mbopa who threw his spear into Shaka's back from point-blank range. Some Zulu storytellers say Imslangana actually stabbed Shaka first, a blow towards his left armpit, which would have killed him almost immediately by striking the heart, but he missed and hit Shaka's arm instead. Others say it was his left shoulder. Then the other assassins ran up. Dingan is also thought to have stabbed Shaka, who cast off his blanket and was trying to escape the assassins. Some historians dispute the saying Dingaan didn't actually stab his brother. He was lurking in the background and merely held shaka so he couldn't run. The Zulu king was apparently shouting prophetic last words to the effect that, you will come to an end killing one another. And he also repeated the warning about the white people, who he called swallows because they'd come from the sea like the migrating swallows appeared to do, and also because the settlers were building their houses of mud, wattle, and daub, as it was called, just like swallows. Sharker is supposed to have shouted at his brothers that white men would overrun the land and that the whole land would be white, like the light of the stars, and would be overrun by the swallows. Whether or not he said all of the above, we are not entirely certain that he would be Waxing lyrical about swallows while men were sticking assegais into him seems to be rather unlikely, but does have the effect of raising Shaka's esteem within the struggle movement for political change in a modern South Africa. Shaka managed to stagger away, heading towards the sanctuary of his izigodlo, his woman, but he collapsed and died a short distance from the entrance. Some say he begged for mercy, although others scoff that he would never have been so cowardly. As he slumped to the ground, the assassins stopped their attack, which was an insult. Usually, the enemy who fought courageously would be repeatedly stabbed in a ritualized manner called Ukurlomula. Animals that are killed and respected for their ferocity, such as buffalo or lions, are stabbed in this manner. No. In Shaka's case, it's believed that the assassins merely left their spears sticking out of his body. And worse... They didn't cut open his stomach. It's ironic that Zulu warriors did this much later to the British soldiers they killed in Luana. There, 1,500 British soldiers were killed and the impis slit their stomachs to allow the soul to escape and to stop them from bloating. This is done to honour an enemy soldier who fights with dignity and courage. But Shaka was not afforded this honour. Therefore, it can be said that this leader of the Zulus, was afforded less dignity and death than an invading British soldier. And that's how much the royal house hated Shaka. The assassins quickly rounded up local men who were ordered to sing the Ihubo Ballad all about the ancestors and sung to purify the memory as a king dies. They were trying to cleanse themselves of this dastardly act. Macbeth's wife would identify with this sentiment. A black ox was selected from the herd and sacrificed to their ancestors. Then the women of the Isigodlu, the Imlunkulu, came dancing out of their huts, crying, and they were all obviously terrified. It was at this point that the ramshackle logic of the killers was revealed, as the gall from the black ox was mixed with its paunch and then drunk by those who'd killed the king and sprinkled over the people close by to ward off the evil spirits of death. The bladder would then be tied on the arm of the main sacrificer. And who was this then? Was it Dingan or Imtlangana? Both brothers were determined to be the regent, each insisting they were the new king and should wear the bladder. And Boba stepped in and sagely suggested delaying the announcement of the new king until the Baluli Impi returned from Telago Bay. And by the way, he said as Shaka's Neku, he would anoint himself as the acting king. Shaka had he already been in his grave, would have been turning? But he wasn't in his grave yet. The killers left him where he'd fallen, bloody and sprawled near the woman's enclosure. And Plangana suggested dragging the corpse to the river and leaving it for the crocodiles. So while they thought about this, they left it right there, overnight. There was an argument that night, which continued when they awoke the next day. Some said Shaka should be buried as a king. It must be a royal funeral, and finally Dingaan agreed. Mflangana rejected this. He wanted Shaka to be treated worse than a dog or a British soldier. So they pulled their spears from his body, and Shaka was wrapped in the skin of the black ox they had slaughtered, then placed in a sitting position, tied to the central pole of his main hut. His subjects then ran about, collecting all his personal effects from around the kingdom, loin coverings, dancing outfits, beads, brass bangles, while his body slowly decayed in the autumn heat. Once secured, his worldly possessions were placed alongside him, never in front or behind, and he was laid in his grave, but without his spears. This was just in case his ancestors were angry and may rise up to stab the assassins or anyone else around. Clearly a case of bad conscience. You can imagine Dingaan and Implangana washing their hands like Lady Macbeth. A malevolent spirit had taken hold of the moment, no doubt, and Dingan and Implangana ordered all the empty grain pits to be closed up, just in case Shaka's revengeful spirit emerged from the ground in the dark, using the empty pits as channels from below. Then just to make sure he was shut up, a piece of Shaka's beshu his skin loincloth was put over his mouth to stop his idlosi spirit anger from emerging. There was to be no mourning period for Shaka. Dingaan and his co-conspirators said the death of the evildoer or Ichinga, the madman from the Mtetwa people, should not be mourned. They should be happy he was gone from Zululand. The troublemaker was dead. It was time for a proper Zulu to lead. they said. Shaka was buried sitting up like his mother, and like Nandi, he was joined in his grave by members of his clan to keep him company in the afterlife. It was easy to decide who, because Dingane and Implangan had already killed most of these. Nandi's elderly uncle Inkazonke, along with Shaka's predecessor Mama and Intindeka, then Duna of a nearby Ikanda, all killed as they stood aghast on the day of Shaka's death, and now laid alongside Shaka's body. Stones were piled on the grave. A hut was built over the spot. The men who'd built the grave were immediately banished, sent away to distant lands because they'd handled the dead. Guards were posted, supplied with meat and corn, and they remained there on pain of death. Despite being treated so badly, his brothers relented and then followed tradition. After a few months, the spirit of the dead ruler was brought back in a process called Ukubuisa, where a feast is held, and then the spirit would be invited to head off to its final and eternal home called the Umuzi Wedlozi, And thus, Shaka was gone from the real world. But his memory would be invoked repeatedly from then on, and in some ways he never died, as we still venerate this remarkable African leader to this day. So every Heritage Day on the 24th of September, cast your mind back to 1828 to the real reason why we commemorate Shaka Day. Aka'a, Heritage Day. Of course, his death was going to lead to ructions across southern Africa. The first in the line of sight were the white traders of Port Natal. They panicked, expecting the worst, and by December 1828, most had fled back to Port Elizabeth. What happened next is for episode 100. I'm celebrating a century of history of South Africa podcasts with some good news. The series has risen to 16th place on Apple Podcasts. Up six places for 2022. Thank you all for listening. Particularly Stavros, who's an old friend and who hasn't yet been frightened away from this series. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination it helps increase the visibility. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me. Or through Twitter, at Des Until next, May 2023, bring us all good cheer. Forwards.